This is Decapitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Jay has been one of the most thoughtful and prominent public health voices throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and has been one of the most critical of COVID-19 lockdowns in their knock-on effects on economic growth and livelihoods. Welcome, Jay. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you for those kind words. Jay, so you're, to start from the beginning, you were born in Calcutta, India. Tell us about how you came to the U.S., how you came to Stanford, and how uh, you got into our undergrad program here, um, how you went to medical school here, you got an MD here, you got an economics PhD here, and you also became a professor here. You spent, I think, most of your life here. How did you become so um, fascinated in, with, with Stanford? How did you fall in love with Stanford, if it's fair enough to say? I don't know if you're still in love with it, but... Well, I, w- I once was in love with Stanford. Um, I, <laughs> I mean, I... I uh, so I, I, was, I was born in Calcutta uh, in 1968, near, well, near Calcutta. And uh, my mom actually grew up in Calcutta, it, uh, in a slum in Calcutta, my, my dad in a little more middle-class neighborhood. Um, when my dad was a PhD student before he met my mom, he applied for the visa lottery. And when I was what, like three or four, he won the visa lottery. Well, this is the one that's like it's like one percent uh, every year or something. Yeah, like some very, there were some great. like quotas for di- different countries. I don't know. I didn't. I don't know the, quite the details of it. But uh, what I do know is that my dad came to the U.S. one year before. He actually he was a PhD in electrical engineering. Couldn't find a job, so he worked at McDonald's for a year. Wow. Um, and then we came up, me, we, my brother and my mom came a year after, I think it's like 1972, um, and, uh, or 1971 when I was, when I was very little, uh, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts in this housing development, um, and, and until I was 11, my dad got a job, uh, he, he, my dad eventually got a job as an electrical engineer building jet engines for GE, uh, wow. In Lynn, Massachusetts, and then I then, from McDonald's to Jet Engines. Yeah, and then, and then and he then he got a job in General Dynamics, uh, essentially as a as a rocket scientist um, in in Southern California, which is where I was there. I went to high school in, in Southern California, uh, and then uh, Stanford let me in. I mean, I my parents told me I could only apply to in state schools, and uh, Stanford was was an in state school. I they, I was I mean you know. I really liked math and I liked sciences and I was, I was pretty good at them. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It was, it seemed like a natural place. Wow. That, I mean, that, that's fantastic. And, and so you got here, you got in here as an undergrad and like, at what point did you decide to become a health economist, go to medical school and get an economics PhD? It's a pretty <laughs> rare combination. Yeah. I mean that, well, that I'm still not, I'm sure it's, sure it's not the sanest thing to do, but um, there, there was a, uh, so I came to Stanford as an undergrad in 1986, and I was uh, I was really interested in chemistry. Actually, like I, I really liked, uh, and I wanted to be. A, a, you know, I thought I had the back of my head. What what can I do with these sciences? Uh, you know, like and you know, I I, I I figured being a doctor would be a really good use of it. My dad had had a, some heart uh, had had a heart attack actually before I came to the came to Stanford, and um, you know, I, I was really impressed by the the, the uh, uh, 
the ability of doctors to help in situations like that, uh, like my dad, what my dad faced. And I figured I wanted to use the, the, my, my knowledge and or my capacities in math and sciences to, to, uh, to, be, to become a doctor. That's, why, that's all I really wanted. Arrived in, um, and you know, they, they used to have, or maybe I think they still have these general ed requirements. And so I just took econ because I wanted to fulfill general ed requirement. Mm. Uh, uh, from from uh, so uh, like so Professor Gavin Wright taught econ one. Yeah, so he's a, he's a, he's a great economic historian. I think he just retired, has been retired for a little while from Stanford. Um, uh, Gavin Gavin Wright. Yeah, so he um, and I just fell in love with it. I thought it was really really interesting. I, I the idea that you can use math and statistics for something other than chemistry and and, and like other sciences was just a blew me away. And, and these were topics that were so obviously important to the health and well-being of, of huge numbers of people, you know, vulnerable people. Um, and so I majored in econ. Uh, I met um, another uh, Stanford MD-PhD economist named Alan Garber, who's now the provost at Harvard. And I uh, did an honors thesis with him um, and just fell in love with economics, fell in love with the idea that you could use the methods of economics uh, the you know the statistical methods the the, the methods the, the the basic idea of economics which is that there's trade-offs for literally everything um, and apply it to medicine so obviously clearly applied to medicine um, and uh, so I yeah that's that's how I that's what I did at Stanford uh, as an undergrad figured finished undergrad with an econ major but also pre-med um, had finished the pre-med requirements figuring that was that was going to be behind me I'm done with economics that was a fling. I'm um, going to go to medical school. Applied to medical schools. Uh, actually, my dad died right around uh, my, like the end of my senior year. And I was going to go to medical school outside of California, but my, I, I wanted to be, you know, sort of still in, in range of my mom. Um, so I, I and, and when Stanford let me in, I was thrilled. Awesome. I mean, what, what a great feeling. And, uh, and, and also, you know, fantastic that, um, that, that you're still here. How, like, so you graduate, um, you're doing a PhD in economics and uh, an MD in, in, in medic medicine. That takes a little while. You graduate, you then enter tenure track. What, like, can you describe, like, what, I guess, your research agenda was um, for, I guess, you know, the, the past a couple decades sort of coming up to the COVID pandemic? I know that you know, the COVID pandemic obviously you know, changed the trajectory of your career, but I'm curious, what were you doing before the COVID pandemic? Yeah, so uh, I, um, uh, in, in graduate school, so I eventually, I, in medical school, I decided I needed a PhD in econ. I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. Um, and uh, at some point during grad school and medical school, I just, I mean, I just, every time I would do medicine, I would feel like I was missing doing research. I didn't want to live my life thinking, you know, I'm doing something that's really important. Like, you know, medical, you know, clinical medicine is, is, is very important to the life of people. Um, and I didn't want to feel like I was only half-heartedly doing it. Whereas I was wholeheartedly really interested in research. Uh, my thesis in economics was on uh, physician labor markets. The question was, why do doctors earn, why do surgeons earn so much money relative to non like sort of to family practice doctors, for instance? Um, and uh, I, I um, my first job out of grad school was at Rand, the Rand Corporation, which is like a for uh, uh, folks who don't know, 
It's a think tank uh, in Southern California. The history of it is that it, it's it tends to tend to be focused on defense industry things, but it, for, it had actually become quite famous in health economics. Um, they conducted this large randomized experiment in the 70s of, of providing insurance to people. And the question was, what, what effect did it have on demand for care? What effect did it have on health? And the, and, uh, is the RAND health insurance uh, experiment very famous within the... The, those who know, yeah, the Rand Health Insurance. I mean, so, and there were still people around from the from the that the, the Rand Health Insurance experiment days. It was just a vibrant place to do health economics. Um, and uh, one of the things that happens at Rand is you walk around, and there are people with data and questions, and they're just looking for people to help on these like these projects. Um, and I got involved very early on with a project on HIV, and in particular on why it seemed like insurance coverage didn't seem to be improving the health of patients with HIV in the late 90s. Um, uh, it turned out, really, it's, it had to do with the timing of when people got Medicaid for HIV. It was often too late. Uh, they, they, people have HIV, get sick, lose their jobs, not qualify for Medicaid for a long time. Uh, and then when they finally did qualify for Medicaid, it was too late to, like, the, the Medicaid coverage didn't really help. So, that, so the idea was that... Uh, if you if you extended insurance coverage so they could afford medicines earlier, it would be, you know, you'd save the live HIV patients. Anyways, that that project was really really interesting, and it got me interested in infectious disease epidemiology and infectious disease, and health policy surrounding infectious disease epidemiology. An interest I've maintained throughout my entire career, um, uh, and uh, you know, so I I worked on. It's impossible at Rand to work on one issue. <laughs> I worked on a very large number of issues. I got interested in. In the economics of obesity, in 2001, Alan Garber had started here at Stanford this center called the, the Center for Primary Care and Outcomes Research in the Medical School, and he had opened up the search for for new faculty. Um, I know I'd been out at Rand for about three years. I um, and when Alan called me, I mean, it's really hard to say no to your 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 former advisors, uh, and and um, you know, of course, coming coming back to Stanford was an absolute thrill. Wow, I mean. Amazing, and I feel like uh, to Stanford's uh, you know, benefit here uh, is, is so fortunate to have you um, here for for your uh, uh, for your career as well. Um, and, and you've also got, I think, uh, cross appointments at virtually every possible institution that I think you possibly could at Stanford too. I, I don't know if that I'm sure that must be a record. Um, now I, I want to sort of get into the COVID pandemic. How did like the COVID pandemic change the trajectory of your career? Uh, and, and, and how has it changed sort of what you're focusing on now? Um, and, and we can sort of get a little bit more into the Great Barrington Declaration. You know, what does it mean? Um, and, and, you know, how did that come about? Well, um, in, um, uh, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, I, had a, I had a couple of sort of twin, twin uh, uh, inspirations. So, so first, um, I mean, I was born in a poor country. My mom um, grew up in a in a very very poor part of Calcutta. I, I'd actually spent a little bit of time there when I was little, uh, in this in this Calcutta slum, living, uh, you know, in the summer with like with my Calcutta with it in my with in 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 this slum called Kiripur, with where my my mom's parents lived, and her and her sister and brother lived. Um, so I, I had had the experience of seeing what poverty really means. Uh, and of course, in economics, we you know we like we spent the last. 30, 40 years being very proud of the fact that globalization had lifted almost a you know, hundred million, almost a billion people out of poverty, out of dire poverty. 
And the one thought I had was that, look, if we lock down, the West locks down, what will happen to the is that there'll be these knock-on effects will essentially reverse the, the gains from globalization um, in poor countries of the world. Now, the, the kind, and now, globalization, what it actually means is that many poor countries reorganize their economy so that they fit in better with the, the, the world, world economy. That meant many jobs that, uh, that, that, that you know, the, and that, that was the engine that drove the, the uplifting of people out of poverty. Like people had jobs that were not, were not previously available. Um, by locking down the economy, we have a supply chain disruption, you're going to get a very large number of people at the very bottom of that supply chain losing their jobs and, and be at risk of, of dire poverty, terrible, you know, at risk of starvation, can't feed their families. That was, so that, that thought was like very clear in my head when the, when the lockdowns first got proposed. The other thought was an epidemiological thought. Um, the, the, in H1N1, during that H1N1 pandemic, uh, uh, in the swine flu pandemic in 2009, the early estimates of mortality suggested that, that the World Health Organization suggested that it was like a three or four or five percent mortality rate what they were talking about was the case fatality rate. All and the numerator was all the people uh, that had died from the swine flu, and the denominator was the set of people identified by public health and hospitals and so on uh, to have had swine flu. The problem is that public health only had a limited visibility on the spread of the disease. There was a whole series of seroprevalence studies. Seroprevalence meaning studies of prevalence of in the blood, sero's blood. Of, of, uh, of antibodies to swine flu. And that uh, those seroprevalence studies in 2009 found that there were hundreds or more infections out in the community of people who had had the swine flu and recovered and had antibodies that had never come to the attention of public health because they're, 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 the disease was so mild for them. Swine flu did kill some people, and it was severe disease for some people, but it was for most of the population, it was a mild disease. And in fact, that literature found that roughly, that, that the infection fatality rate wasn't 3 or 4%. It was more like 0.01%, 99.99% survival. Um, that actually undermined the, that made it so that, that, that the, pan, the initial panic of swine flu subsided very rapidly as, those, as that information came out. Um, and so I, the, the second thought I had about COVID in the early days was, well, this is a very highly infectious disease. We don't know how far and wide to spread. What, what we need is a study to, to measure that spread of the disease, just like was done with swine flu. Got it. And, and so what, so, um, so I guess like one, one question is like, I know early in the pandemic, there was this question about, was it? NPIs, like lockdowns, non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions that were causing or that would cause losses in economic activity or GDP or output? Or was it the pandemic itself that, you know, people are so scared, they don't want to go outside, they don't want to do business, um, and that, you know, regardless of whether you had NPIs or not, or lockdowns or not, that you would have some um, shortfall in economic, in economic activity, regardless is what Emil Werner and I think a few others sort of argued. Um, is it fair to say that you're pretty squarely in that other camp that lockdowns, NPIs do cause significant losses in economic activity, which has sort of these knock-on effects of of, um, of of sort of lower welfare as a result of, of these? Yeah, so it's um, it's it's complicated. 
so, so first of all, I do think lock, that lockdowns had a, a tremendously bad negative economic effect. But the, but the mechanisms, uh, the, the idea that people lock them themselves down anyways for fear is true. That is absolutely true. But, there's, there's, it, the, but it's important to understand the limitations of that idea. So first, um, uh, and, and this is really important to stress, the fear itself was a policy choice. The World Health Organization chose to, to, uh, to send out the signal that, that 3 or 4% of the people would die if they, if they got infected. That was a policy choice to, 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 to put out a very inaccurate mortality number, way too high relative to the, the truth, um, in order to spread fear. It was a policy choice by public health to spread the message that everyone was effectively equally at risk of COVID, even though it was clear from the Chinese data, from the Diamond Princess data, that it was really older people that were the highest risk group. There's a thousand-fold or more difference in the mortality risk of, of COVID infection from the oldest to the youngest, uh, and that young people were actually relatively, relatively low risk, much lower risk than many other threats to their lives, for instance, not going to school. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that fear itself was endogenous. Uh, the second thing, uh, and this is, this is really important about, 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 about the limitations of that argument, the, the, um, the set of people who could actually lock themselves away without risk to their health and well-being was li very limited. Worldwide, maybe 2% of the population. In the United States, maybe 20 or 30% of the population. I call them the laptop class. The set of people who would not lose their job not lose their livelihood if, uh, because they could replace the work that they were doing in person with work from home. Stay home, stay safe was an incredibly classist, elitist message. The vast majority of the world population could not abide by this. And you look at the, mo the mobility data uh, from around the world around the initial lockdowns, it's very, very clear that it's only the richer neighborhoods that had low, low mobility that extended past two weeks. The first two weeks after the, 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 the initial scare in March 2020, you, you, see, you see decline in mobility for everybody. <clears throat> but very soon, the poorer neighborhoods, you start to see upticks in cases, upticks in mobility, because poor people can't abide a lockdown. Like they can't afford to uh, stay home and stay safe, because if they do, their, their children will starve. So I think that there, there are very strong limits to that argument. And I think the, fa the fact that people do have behavioral responses to th perceived threats, that's a classic idea in ep economic epidemiology. It's, a, it's an idea I've taught. Uh, it's an idea where I've written, pap written papers on, uh, uh, you know, because, for instance, it has co consequences for whether, uh, for vaccination demand. Right? That's a classic idea. It's not new to me. Um, but it was very badly misapplied by economists early in this pandemic. Wow. And, and so you're one of the three uh, signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration. C can you explain like what um, what its sort of original intent is or, or sort of, and maybe more importantly, just what your um, optimal policy approach or prescription is for dealing with COVID-19 and perhaps other pandemics in, in general? Uh, so uh, the, the the Great Barrington Declaration we wrote with in October 2020 um, with Martin Kulldorff of then of Harvard he's on leave at Harvard now and then uh, Sunetra Gupta of Oxford uh, two very fantastic epidemiologists uh, Sunetra is a theoretical epidemiologist of the first order 
uh, at, at Oxford. She's designing like a, uh, like a, vac a universal vaccine for the flu. Um, that, that was a the thing that she's doing immediately before the pandemic. Uh, Martin Kulldorff was a biostatistician um, who had designed the statistical infrastructure used by the FDA and the CDC to, to track vac vaccine safety. Um, we come together in Great Barrington, Massachusetts in October 2020, basically because um, the lockdowns, uh, which I, I explained to you why I was already skeptical about them, had already done tremendous damage. School closures had already harmed the lives of a tremendous number of children worldwide. Um, the, 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 and the, and, and the, um, the effects on the lockdowns on the poor, the working class had already become manifest. Uh, the UN World Food Program was already issuing statements like, you know, 100 million people are going to starve as a consequence of the lockdowns. And yet the world was ignoring this. And October 2020, people, it was the summer had come and the disease wasn't quite so panic making as it had been in March of 2020. It looked like it was starting to go away to some people. But it was really clear from the epidemiological data to me that the disease was coming back, that there was some sense that, there, 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 that, 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 that very, that the seroprevalence studies showed maybe, ten, maybe 15, 20% of the population, depending on the country and, and place. Uh, uh, in the U.S., it was like 10, 10, 15% of the population had been infected. That meant there was a large fraction of the population that was still quite uh, uninfected. The disease was very clearly coming back. It wasn't gone still a very highly infectious disease. In the summer, you'd seen the spread, for instance, in places like Arizona, causing all kinds of problems. Um, and it was also clear that if it came back, the lockdowns would come back. And with the lockdowns, the same damage, damage to the poor, the same damage to children, the same damage to the working class. So we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration to propose a strategy, which we called focus protection. The idea is very simple. You know that the highest risk people are people that are elderly. You know, there are some, there are some chronic conditions that can affect the, the risk as well, but the single most important risk factor for a bad outcome is, is, is your age. Um, and, you know, roughly every seven years of age doubles your infection fatality rate, according to, to the infection fatality rate data that have been out. Um, the, the, so what we proposed was focus protection for older people and then lifting lockdowns. That is actually a completely unoriginal idea. It's the same strategy that had been followed basically in every single respiratory virus pandemic from uh, going back a century. Uh, in 2009, that's what we did. We didn't lock down our society when there was a swine flu pandemic. What we did is we uh, tried to develop as rapidly as possible vaccines and therapeutics and deploy them at scale for older people, for, for the people that were highest risk, <laughs> Excuse me. Um, um, and at the same time, disrupt the lives of everyone, everyone else as little as possible. That's what we did in the United States. Mexico actually locked down. And it caused tremendous damage. They decided that it was a mistake um, in 2009. So, uh, and, and if you go back a century, you see respiratory virus pandemic after respiratory virus pandemic, you see the same strategy. And it works. Right? Don't panic society because by panicking society, you harm the people who can least afford it. And do work to protect vulnerable people as best you can, given the technologies you have. Um, and, and we were calling for a conversation by 
people in public health, local public health, because the, the, the exact kind of what focus protection actually means is a very local thing. It depends on local living circumstances. And uh, it was a one-page document. We're calling for change in strategy. Uh, but in, uh, in that, we also included a lot of suggestions for exactly what, what focus protection could look like. So for instance, giving leave to people who were older, sabbatical leave when the, when the disease was spreading rapidly. Um, you know, so all, all kinds of ideas were included in, 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 the, in, the, in the website that we wrote um, for uh, how to do focus protection. Got it. And, and I'm curious, like, in terms of um, school shutdowns, I think there's sort of an interesting example where there was a pretty rapid change in you know, the so-called consensus uh, around whether or not schools should be reopened and, and the potential damage uh, that that could have uh, in terms of like educational outcomes. Like I'm curious, like what you thought about that whole um, episode and how it played out in, I guess, the sort of um, uh, intellectual, you know, public health establishment and, and how that changed so quickly. And I'm, I'm curious, like what your thinking has been around, you know, you, you've been, um, you and others have, have been dismissed and, and, you know, by folks at the NIH, by folks, um, certainly, um, I, I think uh, on, on YouTube and, and elsewhere and, 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 and here at Stanford. And I'm curious how, what is that whole experience been like? I don't think, you know, you've ever in your entire career, um, you know, been seen or viewed in any way as being, um, a partisan figure. You're still, in, in my opinion, not a partisan figure at all. Um, and I'm just curious, how has this saga changed your thinking around, um, around really like, do we value truth? Is, is truth, you know, at all really a value or is it sort of more so about, you know, promoting early hypotheses that people tend to cling to? Um, and, and, you know, science ultimately is, is about, um, you know, postulating hypotheses and, and, and ultimately you know, ruling out incorrect hypotheses. I'm just curious, like, how is your sort of view of, of how science is being done in some of these you know, great uh, institutions? How, how has that changed in, in your mind? And what has what this experience been like for, for you know, such an incredible scholar such as yourself? Well, so, uh, so why don't we start with the schools? Um, I mean, because that's a, that's a good way to, t to get into the rest of the question. Um, uh, the, 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 um, in August of 2020, uh, it was I, it was really clear to me that one of the worst mistakes we'd made in the spring was closing schools. Um, there was data out of Iceland that suggested that that uh, kids were not super spreaders. They could spread the disease, but they were not super spreaders like they like they might be with some of the other respiratory virus, virus, viruses. Um, and so they didn't pose any special extra risk. Sweden had kept its schools for, for kids 15 and under open the entire pandemic with no restrictions. No, no social distancing, nothing, just normal school, even in the spring of 2020. And uh, there were reports that had come out of, the, out of that experience that uh, not only did no children die in that spring from COVID, but also that the teachers themselves were relatively uh, lower risk of getting COVID and dying than the rest of the population. Being around kids that actually protected them against COVID. Um, there were some like uh, arguments for why that might be the case. Like, uh, for instance, if you were uh, like parents with young kids, actually uh, compared to age matched other adults, 
did better on COVID, maybe because they were exposed to other virus, other coronaviruses that had some some measure of protection against uh, against uh, uh, against COVID, against COVID, uh, which is also coronavirus. I mean, there, there's some theories around that, uh, and there's some data around that that suggested that was true. In any case, the point is that there was not a special risk to teachers, and kids themselves are a very very low risk. Um, and so, on, on the basis of that evidence, Europe opened its schools. Um, and uh, the governor of uh, Florida decided to open schools in Florida. He sent an email out. Or he sent. He sent. He, he made. He sent an email. He sent a, um, a, 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 a an order out, executive order out, saying that every school in Florida had to provide any person option. And what happened next was that the Florida teachers union sued the governor to close the schools. And uh, the, uh, the, the folks in Florida couldn't find an expert to defend the Florida, the governor's decision in court. Um, so when they contacted me, I jumped at the chance to, 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 uh, on this because I, I knew what the literature had said. Uh, and uh, we, we eventually won. Um, but the, there were experts on the other side who were just, I mean, they just didn't understand the data. It was really clear they didn't understand it. And it was also clear they were very scared by COVID. Um, and yet they were there. They were from prominent institutions on the other side, arguing that kids should should, should have their schools closed in Florida. Um, a lot of what happened during the pandemic revealed big gaps in our in the ability of people in, in prominent institutions, including at Stanford, to read the data appropriately and react appropriately. A lot of what happened was was was, was decision making out of fear and panic. An inability to understand that there, that there, there could be other views to, to, and to seek to learn from other views. There was no, on Stanford campus, for instance, um, there was no debate ever set up between me and other people who disagreed with me regarding the safety of school closures, for instance. Um, you know, there was a JAMA pediatrics paper uh, in 2020 that found that the, just the spring closures had led but it will lead to almost five and a half million life years lost for American kids. And this is just a, a classic result in the literature, in the, in the health economics literature, that if you have, uh, uh, that, that school is an incredibly good investment in health. You uh, increase school, if you increase the amount of time people, kids stay in school for just a short while, it actually has long-term positive consequences. They, they lead uh, healthier, longer lives as a consequence of, of more complete schooling. That was a well-established finding in the literature. Um, health economists, for the most part, stayed silent about that finding, in the, uh, which still shocks me. Um, what should have happened was debates, right? That's how, that's the, it's not bad or wrong for scientists to be wrong about something. That's just normal. Um, what was bad was that it was seen as so far outside the bound to say that kids should go to school in August of 2020 in the United States that 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 the place like Stanford University wouldn't even host a debate about it. Wow. In, in so, so you know, pivoting toward you know, sort of the scientific establishment like I'm curious like personally like how have you experienced this whole like what does it feel like to have you know you're such a decorated scientist you know what does it feel like to have you know peers um, 
people who you've you know, held in highest uh, you know esteem for I'm sure your entire career um, sort of had this about turn that seems to be not sort of true to the scientific method and you know uh, well you know you must be wrong even though maybe they, they don't have you know all the evidence or, or they're seeking a, you know certain studies or, or certain sort of pre-drawn um, narratives I'm, I'm curious like what is that personal experience like I felt like excommunication. I mean, it was it was um, uh, through the summer of 2020. I, I, I and especially the spring of 2020. Uh, I, I'm almost from the first moment I started speaking out publicly about my ideas about the the pandemic. I've received death threats. I've received like racist attacks. Um, but on on Stanford campus, uh, it, it felt like ex excommunication. So a uh, hundred of my colleagues signed a letter attacking Scott Atlas. For the crime of being President Trump's COVID advisor, and on on ridiculous grounds, the, the letter of attacking him hinted at the idea that that he was opposed to hand washing, which was not true. It was ridiculous. They never even approached him and asked him what his ideas actually were. Uh, and Scott and I got to know each other actually during the pandemic. We were exchanging papers with each other, just talking with each other all the time. Um, he knew a lot more about the pandemic than those hundred people that signed that letter against him, and 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 it essentially created this this atmosphere, this hostile work environment at Stanford, where people who didn't agree with the lockdowns felt like they didn't belong on campus. Every single person I know who spoke who had reservations about lockdowns on campus felt the same exact way. And it felt not anything like the Stanford I, I can't, I, 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 that I fell in love with in 1986. Um, the, 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 uh, I kept thinking the, the motto of the university is, you know, let the winds of freedom blow in, in German, which I can't pronounce. Um, it, it, but the winds of freedom did not blow at Stanford during the pandemic. In fact, it was very stif it was a stifling environment designed to create a false sense of unanimity around lockdown policies that did not exist, neither on campus and, of course, not not uh, not in the broader scientific community. Got it. Well, I, I'm curious. Like, I want to shift a little bit um, toward vaccines, and, and I'm curious. Like, you know, one, it, it seems so interesting to me how you know starkly different the public health um, element of uh, the sort of COVID response, so, you know, should we have lockdowns and so forth, how, how different really it's been from the biotechnology side of things, uh, which is, you know, just how quickly, um, you know, we were able to develop a vaccine that I think, you know, exceeded many expectations. I'm curious, like, what do you think about, um, one, the sort of race to develop vaccines, about things like Operation Warp Speed, you know, advanced market commitments for vaccines. Do you think that that's like a huge success story? And um, I, I'm just curious, like, um, do you think that it, maybe it's somewhat underappreciated because, you know, it was President Trump that was, you know, uh, in office while this was sort of started? And, uh, and I, I think, um, uh, you know, President Biden has taken some credit for this too and, and, and probably deserves some credit too. But uh, I'm curious what you, what you think about that. And, and I'm also curious, like, what you think about um, – the, since then, you know, there's been this huge movement that um, is opposed to vaccines, and 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 there's many people that have advocated, you know, for very strongly for vaccine mandates, um, whether it's uh, governments or, or or private sector bodies that should be implementing these things. I'm curious, like, what what are your views on on on, on sort of this moment of uh, 
uh, of the pandemic sort of since uh, the vaccine sort of started coming online in 2021. So, uh, so the first part of the question, what do I think of Operation Warp Speed? I have to say that it's um, like as, as a full confession, the, 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 one of the things I got the most wrong during the pandemic is that in, in February, March 2020, I thought it was not possible to develop a vaccine within months. I thought it would take years. And the reason for that was that we didn't have a coronavirus vaccine. And there was a, a history going back to, you know, at least two decades of attempts that, that were, you know, didn't seem to me were going anywhere. So I didn't see how it would be possible to develop a vaccine so rapidly. And so when the, the when uh, President Trump ordered Operation Warp Speed, I was very skeptical whether it would succeed. But then as the season wore on, it, it became clear to me that this was actually potentially, might, it might work. And in any case, there's, of course, there's some uncertainty around that, let's say in July of 2020, whether it will work. The government makes an advanced commitment and says, look, if, if it, we're going to buy your vaccine, whether it works, what, what, you know, whether it works or not, in order to provide some incentive to, to do this rapid development, right? Change, all, change re, all, all, what all your research is doing to focus on this, very expensive for a drug company. I actually thought that was a really good idea. And the, and the reason is um, the, the asymmetric loss. Okay, if, you, if the vaccine doesn't work, then, okay, yeah, you lose some billions of dollars. What's the big deal? But if it does work, you've done something really amazing. Like you've, you've, you've potentially saved the lives of, of, of a tremendous number of people. Um, uh, and so I, th- I was actually, I, I was okay with that policy, even as I thought it's unlikely to work. Um, and then when the, the vaccine actually, the, 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 the trial came out and it actually worked, I was over the moon happy. I was absolutely thrilled. It was, it, it was it, 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 to me, it still is a triumph of science that uh, that now there's some ambiguity around this. Like, how is it that we had a spike protein target for the vaccine so quickly? Um, normally, it would t- take a long time. A lot of that is actually based on um, on a on a research program of finding viruses that are potentially potentially pe- uh, pathogenic in the environment, and then augmenting them and doing vaccine research with them early. So, so that when, if and when there's a pandemic, you, you have a lot of knowledge. So, um, but what if that research itself was the cause of the pandemic? All right, so that, that's, there's some, so certainly some ambiguity. I, so I, about, about how this, this technological advance came about. Um, but the fact that the vaccine did come about, I think, is, was an amazing thing to me in December of 2020. Um, now, uh, it's one thing to develop the technology of this, this, this mRNA, mRNA platform um, or, the, or the, uh, the adenovirus platforms for the vaccines or even the traditional vaccine platforms. Um, that's, that's one thing. It's another thing for how do you assess clinically whether it's worthwhile or not or will work or not. Um, the trials themselves were these huge trials, like 40,000 people, um, I think, in the Pfizer trial, something on that order. Uh, and it was... The fact that it could be run so quickly was an amazing thing to me. So first, if it's run quickly, that means you will only know about what the effects are of the vaccine for the, 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 the duration of the trial, right? So then this is case like two or three months. So you don't know any long-term effects of the vaccine from the trial itself in December of 2020. You just know two or three months of data. Um, the trial had as an endpoint the prevention of symptomatic infection. That is actually not that important 
from an epidemiological point of view. From an epidemiological point of view, there's two other outcomes that are more important. One is prevention of uh, infe all infection and prevention of transmission of the disease. That's an endpoint that you could look at that the trials didn't look at. Uh, symptomatic infection, 95% effective. But that doesn't mean that it's 95% effective against all infection. And it certainly doesn't mean that it's going to be long-lasting protection. You only know for two or three months. The other clinical endpoint you could have looked at but didn't was prevention of death or prevention of hospitalization. That would have required a much, much larger trial. But that also has a really important epidemiological consequence. So the reason why those are two really important epidemiological endpoints is because if you can... If you just have knowledge that you prevent severe disease and death, then what you do is you just use the vaccine for focused protection. Give it to, to people who are at highest risk, reduce their risk of death, roll it out rapidly for those, those groups first, and then make it optional for the rest. It doesn't, it's not nearly as important for people who have a very low risk of infection from dying from the disease. But you can make it available, but it's not like the, the, the highest epidemiological priority. Um, if, on the other hand, you have prevention of transmission, well, then what you need is a very large fraction of the population to get vaccinated, and then the disease will just sort of die out to low levels because such a large fraction of the population is, is vaccinated. Um, the problem was that we didn't know it would prevent transmission with certainty. We didn't know with, with certainty they would prevent hospitalizations and deaths in December 2020. The, the public health then had to make a guess which was more likely. And what was going to happen. Public health guessed wrong. And I actually wrote an op-ed in op December 2020 in the Wall Street Journal with Sinetra Gupta arguing that we should use the vaccine for focused protection of elderly people. And the reason was that if it prevents symptomatic infection, it is very likely it also prevents severe disease. You don't get severe disease unless you've had some symptomatic infections, the way I reasoned. So we were pretty certain that that would prevent severe disease from the randomized trials, at least for two or three months. Um, and if we, if we rapidly rolled out the vaccine to older people, there was a wave coming. We are in the middle of a wave of cases. Um, we, could have, we could have prevented a lot of deaths. That was, that was the argument. Um, I think that argument's still right. The other side, you know, Tony Fauci and others, pushed for 70, he kept raising the number, 70, 80% of the population has to be vaccinated for her, to meet the herd immunity threshold, which he didn't actually know what that number was. It was no one did. No one did. Um, and that's what led to this tremendous push to vaccinate everybody, even at the cost of, of telling people falsehoods. After a couple of months of experience with the vaccine, it became very clear the vaccine does not stop transmission does not stop you from getting infected. Heavily vaccinated countries in late spring 2021 started to see big outbreaks of cases. We knew from then that the vaccine could not be used for disease suppressing the disease down to zero. But nevertheless, we went on with these vaccine passports where we essentially discriminated against unvaccinated people, treated them like pariahs, second-class citizens. Uh, vaccine mandates where many people who didn't want the vaccine actually probably clinically was not particularly beneficial to them because they were low risk, um, uh, they, they lost their jobs. Um, a lot of people uh, who have family abroad where the vaccines weren't even available yet, couldn't, they couldn't have the family come visit because of this discriminatory policy where unvaccinated visitors were not allowed in the United States. That's still in place today. Um, 
And what it did is it created this like sense that the public health doesn't know what it's doing. It said that the, if you get the vaccine, you wouldn't get infected. Well, so many people got the vaccine and then were infected. That's how, that happened to me. And I got, I was fully vaccinated in April, 2021 and August, 2021, I got COVID. Wow. Um, so it's, it's not, uh, it's one of these things where like public health will blame misinformation, but they should look at, point the fingers at themselves. They were the main source of this misinformation. Long after it became clear in the scientific data that the vaccine didn't stop transmission, they kept insisting that it would, that it was vitally important. And it is no wonder that people have lost trust in public health when they were so wrong and so adamantly wrong. And then they tied that to policies that damaged the lives of people, disrupted their lives. Uh, people started treating unvaccinated people like pariahs. You know, in Thanksgiving of 2021, um, I kept getting emails from people uh, are very unhappy because their their families had uninvited them from Thanksgiving because they weren't vaccinated. Uh, I mean, that is a consequence of public health misinformation. It's a campaign that has resulted in widespread, uh, a much much broader, uh, uh, a much broader anti-vaccine movement that has ever existed that I've seen in my career, and it is directly the consequence that of public health. Uh, uh, not understanding the science, not understanding the limits, the, the basic civil liberties, and not understanding its its vital role in making sure that no, that that we that it doesn't create social division, and it failed on all those bases. Wow. I, I get sort of just one last question here. So, so I mean, one like going forward in terms of preventing pandemics, addressing pandemics when when they occur, it seems like one pattern that sort of emerged. Uh, is that you know these things like you know Operation Warp Speed or advanced market commitments do seem to be you know useful mechanisms now to build up capacity for vaccines and, and these are things that we didn't have before um, you know when we can sort of have you know sort of incentives aligned um, to, to you know make you know effectively billions of vaccines in uh, you know, the, the shortest possible period of time and, and perhaps. I know it's been done before for pneumococcal and, and I think potentially in the future, maybe for malaria. I'm curious, like looking back on all of this and this entire experience, um, what do you hope uh, we have learned as a community, um, both scientific and, and somewhat non-scientific as well, or public health, um, biotechnology and so forth? You know, what do you think uh, we should have learned from this pandemic and what should we be doing to prepare or get ready for uh, the next uh, pandemic when it comes? I think that the primary lesson for public health from this pandemic should be humility. Public health did everything, almost everything wrong. And as a result, public trust in public health is at its lowest point I've ever seen in my career. Um, and uh, it needs to ask itself why all of this went wrong. And the answer is not going to be other people. It will be public health officials, it'll be academics and in public health, it'll be, it will be uh, public health itself that is to blame. Um, we, we violated the civil liberties of a tremendous number of people with lockdown. We harmed the, uh, the, the lives and health of literally tens of millions of people with the, the policies that were pushed by public health, that were told by public health would solve the epidemic. Um, and they're, they're really, if there isn't introspection on the, on the place of public health, honest introspection, and then tied to 
public health leaders who made these mistakes losing their positions, uh, I don't see how the public will ever trust public health again. Wow. For As far as preparing for the next pandemic, um, I actually think the old plan worked pretty well. Like, I, 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 I'm okay with, uh, with with newfangled things like like uh, you know sort of pre pre commitments for for vaccines and essentially contests to like produce vaccines rapidly. I mean I think that's that's fine, but as long as it's tied to it's it's as long as as that 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 kind of effort isn't tied to really really bad policies. So for so just here's what I have in mind. Imagine uh, another another pandemic starts and uh, some president says, look. We're going to do an operation warp warp speed, warp 10 speed, um, and we'll have a vaccine in three months. Well, the, the, the push to lockdown will be tremendous given the structure of public health we have now. But three months of lockdown is not a trivial thing. It means that a very large number of people around the world will starve. It, will, it means that uh, our children, will, will, will their schooling be interrupted with consequences for health and well-being for the rest of their lives that the working class people will suffer. Tying lockdown policies to the potential for whether a, a vaccine may or may not, which may or may not work at, at warp speed is tremendously bad policy. Uh, and so what I'm, that's what I'm afraid is going to happen. Uh, it's okay, in fact, an active good to have this, this technological capacity. We don't know for certain it'll work, but it, it, it's really good to have this. And it's the kind of thing we ought to be able to do, well, ought to be able to invest in. Um, but we public health has to draw a firm line and say we're never going to use this as an excuse to do tremendously stupid things like lockdowns. Wow. Wow, that, um, it's been such a fascinating yeah. conversation, Jay, and, and really just... Uh... Uh, a real pleasure to hear your thoughts and, and, and you sort of summarizing your, your views on, on all of these issues. You know, I know you've been um, certainly uh, one of the most prominent uh, voices uh, and commentators throughout the entire pandemic. And, and um, I salute you for um, for contributing to uh, such a important public service and, and uh, especially when you know, lives and livelihoods are both on the line. Thank you so much for joining us, Jay. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you for this conversation. It was fun. Today, our guest was Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of medicine at Stanford University and is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.